0: G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. And it wasn't always safe for the one and only Christopher Hitchens to express some of his more dangerous ideas. It was frequently quite hazardous. But express them nonetheless he did, ideas like the idea that one of the worst people ever to walk the face of the planet was Mother Teresa, the idea that former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger ought to be behind bars in the International Court of Criminal Justice, these are ideas that he held so fervently he even wrote books about each of them. In fact, there probably, probably isn't a contrarian provocative idea that would get you uninvited or kicked out of polite dinner parties on both sides of the political aisle that Christopher Hitchens didn't at some point countenance. That's what made him so beloved and so loathed. If you're not familiar with Hitch, his books have been profoundly important on me. He was one of the most incredible, fiery, passionate, articulate defenders of reason and smaller liberalism, and indeed before that, socialism, uh, that we've had. Um, Letter to a Young Contrarian was an extraordinary book. Uh, God is Not Great is an extraordinary broadside against religion. And so many of his speeches and debates on YouTube that you can look up just show this sparkling... Fascinating mind. Today's guest, Matt Johnson, has written a terrific book about Hitchens's impact on the left, and I suppose how sorely missed he is after a premature death. Uh, in today's culture war debates, in particular, Matt, today's guest, uh, writes of Hitchens in an article about him on the Bulwark, which is a companion uh, to this book, that Hitchens embraced the battle as an end in itself, not only to refine his own arguments but also because, as John Stuart Mill understood, the open exchange of ideas is the foundation of civil society. Can you think of a sentence that better describes my aspirations than the idea that the open exchange of ideas is the foundation of civil society and that the intellectual battle is an end in itself? Um, Hitchens is often remembered as this booze fueled hyper-erudite celebrity a pugnacious provocateur, in the words of Matt Johnson, my guest, and a contrarian, which is a word that he despised. Um, But Matt Johnson's point here is that it's actually Hitchens' ideas and principles are what deserve attention today. He may have a reputation as a defector from the left, as a neoconservative because he supported the war in Iraq, but he was actually more faithfully committed to liberal principles than many people on the left are today. Free expression, internationalism, individual rights. Um, Look, I won't prejudge this conversation. Uh, Matt is a very smart guy. He's a journalist. He's been published all over the place. Uh, This is his first book. It's called How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. Enjoy Matt Johnson. Like reading uh, reading Hitchens long after he's passed away through the, through at least through your prism of recollections of him. He's a person who everyone seems to want a piece of, right? Everyone's like claiming. I feel like Hitch has become uh, a Rorschach test for people. Yeah, people want him on their side. Um,
1: yeah, which is fair enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want him on my side too. It's just I happen to be right about his being on my side. What oh, do you exactly? I mean the the let's start with the left maybe because whatever we talk about whether it's wokeism or the intellectual dark web or liberalism or the or cancel culture or the culture wars it all kind of fundamentally comes down to like differences of opinion about what the left is and what the right is at the moment. What did mm. Hitch think the left is?
1: Uh, it's a good place to start just because you know. <laughs> I don't want people to read the title of my book and think it's some kind of broadside against the left. Um, I am addressing the left because I, I consider myself on the left, although that probably means less today than it than it may have meant a few years ago. But you know, to me, Hitchens just represents uh, a fairly pure and consistent form of of liberalism. So you know, when it comes to issues like free speech, when it comes to um, opposition to identitarianism and and a sort of fondness for individual rights um, as a counterpoint to identitarianism. Um, and then, you know, a, a general sense of universalism. So just the idea that uh, every, everyone's life has value and uh, it doesn't matter where you live. Um, you know, and, and these are like the general principles that I think drove Hitchens. And I I, th- I, I think you can trace a pretty honorable... And pretty clear uh, left wing lineage, which also embraces those principles. So I, I think we've gone astray uh, in, in recent years, and Hitchens is, is a good way back toward those those ideas and those principles on the left. Uh, so it's was,
0: was he a was he a smaller liberal when he was younger, I, or was he a fiery kind of socialist sympathizing
1: workers of the world uh, unite type? Well, he's definitely the latter, <laughs> but at the same time, I think he had plenty of small L uh, liberal characteristics. So uh, one one debate I've been mentioning uh, of late is this one that he had. It's, you can find it on C-SPAN. And it's just, uh, I think the the prompt is socialism versus capitalism, which is the moral system. And Hitchens is making the case for socialism because this is in the, the mid uh, 80s. But it was interesting to me because his core points, like his core definition of so, so socialism at the beginning of the debate just sound like, Uh, liberal humanism to me. I mean, he talks about the importance of internationalism right out of the gate. Uh, He talks about secularism. And it it just he doesn't really get around to the principle of, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, until, you know, a few points into the the introductory statement. So it it was it was interesting. I I never really Mm. thought of Hitchens as um, a, a economic thinker worth engaging with, but more of a more of more of you know a, someone who's oriented toward international affairs and and toward um, liberalism more broadly. So that's right. that that was just, that's just one example of how even when he was a firebrand, um, I think he did have this sort of liberalism coursing through his thought
0: yeah I mean it's interesting. I wonder whether he was I wonder what he was meaning by socialism and capitalism in the eighties anyway I mean, if you're in a context of Thatcher, then maybe socialism just means northern European democratic socialism, and he's not thinking of anything like what the American boogeyman of socialism, which is sort of a synonym for communism is
1: Oh, I would say in the eighties he was a socialist as traditionally defined um i mean he he always considered himself a marxist or somebody who at least thought like a marxist that was a distinction he often made in his last two decades but yeah I, I think he was he was a socialist who um believed in the nationalization of certain industries was was definitely not just the sort of milk toast uh, social democrat that that you'll see in europe today i mean yeah. he was he was on the hard left and you know in this this uh this very hard line also um, applied to his views on foreign policy as well. You know, he was he was a very bitter and acerbic critic of, of U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, and that led to to projects like his campaign against Kissinger and, and just a ton of articles and, and Harpers in The Nation about the horrors of Reaganism and, you know, what have you. So he, he yeah, was definitely course, on the hard left. I wouldn't to want to unpack say this that just... a
0: bit for, for us because the – the the Hitchens that looms largest from the past few decades of his life, and that has been co opted by neoconservatives, and that people feel uh, uh, re- uh, you know repelled by if they're on the left, is this semi hawkish pro Iraq War um, individual rights small L liberal. Yet there's this whole period of his life where I mean he's writing entire books about how. You know Henry Kissinger should be in The Hague and should be in prison for war crimes, and how Mother Teresa was a a fraud and a <laughs> uh, <laughs> fundamentalist and fanatic fundamentalist. And so you know he starts, he comes right out of the gate with these incredibly controversial, far, far, far outside of the mainstream opinions taking down sacred cows of uh, on both on both sides. Can you plot us through that
1: that portion of his biography? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely overlap there too, because his Kissinger book came out in, in nineteen ninety-nine, I believe, or, or two thousand. Um well, know. And, you know, this is this is years after he was making a very forceful case for NATO intervention in Bosnia and then later in Kosovo. Um, so the idea that US foreign policy is just kind of like always and forever this rapacious uh, imperial machine, which is sort of the Chomskyite view wasn't one that he actually held by the time he published his book on Kissinger. Um, so Hitchens thought Kissinger was a, a distinctly noxious figure. And um, I think that extends from his general hostility toward Cold War, U.S. foreign policy, and, and the sort of rail politique that, that Kissinger practiced. So Hitchens just thought that that Kissinger was indifferent to human rights. So, you know, on the Kissingerian view, the United States would do well to support um, Saddam Hussein in the iran-iraq war because that, that could balance the power in the region so the human cost wasn't wasn't um, a concern um, and I, I, I think that really disgusted him and then when he saw um, some American policymakers and and others in the uh, in the sort of international commentariat or whatever you want to call it pushing for intervention in Bosnia he thought there was something different happening he thought this this was something that could be construed as a humanitarian intervention. And that's that's when he had a pretty dramatic shift and a pretty dramatic break from the left. So he was just as critical of the left. You know, unfortunately, we have to use these words because it's kind of impossible to communicate without some measure of generalization. But he, he was really critical over many of his left-wing comrades uh, over Bosnia. And he really sounded like he did after September uh, 11th, um, even in the 90s. But then the Kissinger book came out later. So there, you know, I think it was difficult for... Hitchens to reconcile some of these ideas. And you can see that process taking place throughout the 90s. And then obviously after September 11th, that's when he became you know, the fulminating neocon that people love to hate now. So, Was it
0: difficult for him to reconcile those ideas though? Or was it perfectly consistent in his mind? I mean, the, the, the through thread that you're sort of pointing to in his antagonism, his loathing of Kissinger and the American foreign policy establishment, and yet his susceptibility to ideals like... Bosnia and even Iraq is that, I mean, I I suppose from the most generous perspective to him is he, he resents big powers strutting around and doing whatever they like because very important men with medals on their shirts and cigars, you know, say that (laughs) this is the way that the world ought to be. And he just has an instinctive hatred of that kind of elitist posturing. Um, And at the same time, he thinks that anytime you could, the, the the left can get morally confused about who those assholes are and that Saddam Hussein was mm. certainly one of those assholes too. And Slobodan Milosevic was certainly one of those assholes too. And so to the extent that we can use the might of the West to try to take those assholes down a peg, uh, you know, you can't sort of universalize that American power is always good or always bad. You sort of have to pick your battles and figure out what is the aspiration
1: that you're you're pursuing. So I don't know, oh, exactly. absolutely! Yeah, yeah. You you are pushing at an open door for sure. Um, so, one distinction worth making at the outset is is just that there were some positions that were more difficult for Hitchens to hold later in life than others. And you know, supporting the Iraq War as forcefully as he did had to be more difficult because he was such a strong uh, opponent of the Gulf War. And it, you just can't square those two positions with one another. Um, Saddam Hussein had just committed his most egregious crimes during the Gulf War including the invasion of Kuwait um but the Iran-Iraq war was in fresh memory um the Anfal campaign against the Kurds was also in fresh memory so if you're going to oppose that war um it's inconsistent to later say no now is the time to depose to, to depose uh, Saddam Hussein so that that's one position where he did actually struggle and he ultimately admitted that he changed his mind you know, it, it, Hitchens didn't frequently admit when he changed his mind, and he didn't usually <laughs> he didn't usually spend much time on the ways in which he changed his mind. But in that case, it was just too glaring an inconsistency, so he had to. But no, you're you're absolutely right about that. And there's one um, interview that I've been calling people's attention to, and it was on C-SPAN when he was supporting the Kissinger book. Um, a, a caller, you know made all the familiar points about how the United States is essentially the great Satan and how we're you know, worse than Hitler because of the sanctions on Saddam and this is the sort of stuff that you run into on the uh, self-satisfied anti-imperialist left. Um, and Hitchens, Hitchens said he just kind of stopped the guy. And this was pre-September 11th. And he said, I just want you to know that Saddam Hussein is everything that is said of him. And he talked about sitting on an unexploded chemical bomb in Halabja. And he said that you know Saddam Hussein, if he would stop operating outside the bounds of, international law and convention um he could feed the Iraqi people and you know they didn't have to have hyper hyper inflation in Iraq and Saddam was riveting this horror on his people so even when he was talking about Kissinger um and 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 discussing the you know the disgusting history of American foreign policy in Indochina for example he also bore in mind the fact that you know there are totalitarian forces on the planet who who Mm. you know could could uh could damn well use a little bit of a american course correction so yeah yeah <laughs> and he was he was a supporter of operation provide comfort you know the nato uh no-fly zone in northern iraq and then there was another no-fly zone established other southern iraq um which operated throughout the 90s um he thought we were kind of in a state of low-grade warfare with with iraq in that entire period so yeah yeah Well, yeah. no, yeah. we were i guess um i mean it's so interesting because
0: you're pointing to this sort of moral clarity that he had. Well, I'm not saying that it was necessarily moral or immoral, but he had a clarity of vision of 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 what the right was that's that would that now smacks sort of, of Western chauvinism. Right. Mm-hmm. And could be accused of being too universalist. Like not everyone in the world wants liberal democracy. It doesn't work everywhere. Like some people want much more communitarian uh, systems and small groups of you know no, conservative Muslims in the highlands of Northwest Pakistan don't necessarily want, you know, Jeffersonian ideals, like, and uh, (laughs) that's, that's actually fine for them to be slightly oppressive to individuals within their communities if they want to construct their communities that way. Um, and the, that sort of moral relativism infused the left during Hitchens's final hurrah and during the Iraq war period found expression on the right, I think, in the form of Donald Trump and the the decline of, I guess, neoconservative interventionist ideals. I guess we can park uh, Ukraine for one second. But just on the question of, like, universal morals versus moral relativism, I can never quite figure out whether this current moment of hyper-aggressive passion on the left for social justice issues is a moment of moral arrogance and chauvinism or a moment of moral relativism because it seems to have features of both
1: where are we yeah uh, that's a good way to frame it you know it's okay on identity politics and on i think the direction in which the left was heading um when hitchens died i i th- I can easily envision him being, you know, among the most ferocious critics of identitarianism and this illiberal turn that we've witnessed across much of the left today. I mean, it, you just you just can't get away from. You know, there was just an article in in the Atlantic about this sort of DEI industry, um, and it, it it's one of those. It's by Connor. Friesdorf I, mean, I can't Friesdorf wow. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just it's just a tremendous takedown of what has become a very cynical and opportunistic enterprise and there are a lot of there are a lot of credulous people on the left who think that this sort of thing is sort of unambiguously good all the time i mean focusing on what divides people focusing on racial division, you know, this is the sort of D'Angelo approach or the even Max Kennedy approach where you say like these, these things are, you know, bigotry is so ingrained in us that there is no escape. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll be saddled with identitarian conflict until the end of time. And I always think it's a very unhealthy psychological state to be in, to insist that, you know, these, these distinctions between people are the things that we should trumpet as loudly as possible for as long as possible, and this it just seems it seems antithetical to the left wing tradition that Hitchens emerged from, which was all about universalism. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, say what you want about socialism, it was a universalist idea. I mean, it, 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 Hitchens wanted to foment revolution as broadly as possible. Right. You know, he he went to some some Cuban camp for young revolutionaries when he was a teenager, and he was just he yeah, was just right. he was just a hundred percent behind the idea of international socialism. And um, that, that that was really the driving force behind his politics. And that, that also applied to his view of, of cultural exchange. Um, he would have thought, you know, the, the obsession with cultural appropriation now is very reductive. I mean, he actually wrote yeah. essays about Edward Said, um, in which he said that Said could have been a sort of negotiator and go between between cultures. Um, but instead, he decided to paint with a very broad brush and argue that, you know, any any attempt to well, I mean, I'm, this isn't this isn't me saying this is my summary of Edward Said's work, but this in an article Hitchens wrote for the Atlantic, he said that Said essentially said that you know all, many of the attempts to study the East or to study the Orient were were just ugly imperial enterprises, and he he wasn't he he wasn't really looking at these things as positive sum games. He was looking at it as, as neo sum, or zero sum games. So it, it's just there's there's so much of that on the left now. And an mm. anecdote I use in the book was. Uh, This interview that Bernie Sanders did on Vermont Public Radio in 2020, so during the primary. And he said, you know, we shouldn't judge candidates on the basis of their race or gender or age. Um, We should judge them on the basis of their ideas and principles. And this is, you know, it's a very liberal and, and sensible mindset to have. And of course he was attacked relentlessly for it. You know, Neera Tandon said something like saying age age or saying race and other forms of identity don't matter is just tone deaf. And it's just, you know, a slap in the face to all these marginalized communities. And so there's just like this, this instinctive revulsion and resistance to universalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think Hitchens kind of comes from a tradition that, that plays up universalism rather than, than playing it down and viewing it as some sort of like some sort of smokescreen for bigotry. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I
0: mean, in addition to his instinctive distaste for grouping each other, ourselves into tribes and regarding ourselves as in a zero-sum war of uh, of tribe against tribe, he would also just have an enormous distaste for the the poor reasoning that goes on in some of the diversity, equity, inclusion style argumentation. I mean, the circular logic to it. it it's extraordinary i'm reading a book by a colleague of mine uh because she's coming on the podcast shortly and uh you know she doesn't she is, gets very very angry when anyone says the n word or has ever said the n word in conversation talking about how bad the n word is and i was sort of trying to make the point in private to her that it wasn't always the case that that was universally regarded even in just in conversation about the the existence of the word and how bad it is as a bad thing to say and she says that anyone who makes that argument should examine what wh- where that argument's coming from because that argument is probably coming from a place of racism. well, I mean Hitchens would spot the circularity of that logic before it even got out of bed and put its shoes on right <laughs> you know we're having a conversation <laughs> we're having a conversation about uh, you know a uh, a proposition. The proposition is that uh anyone who ever said the, the N-word and, and actually said the actual word in any context was motivated by racism. And the reason that you're giving me why, which you, you are expecting me to treat as a, as a good proof, as a sound proof for that, is just directing me back to that very statement. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's just yeah, a, uh, question. That's an oh, that's the oldest philosophical canard in the book i mean he would just have no time for the kind of you know if you if you object to ibram kendi or robin d'angelo's ideas if you object to diversity equity and inclusion that means you need more diversity equity and inclusion training to train you out of whatever bias is causing you to think that you don't need it
1: yeah <laughs> it, it reminds me of um after, after the 2020 election, you know, Biden trounced Trump, uh, especially in terms of the popular vote. But there was an interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez where she said, you know, the share of white support for Trump was still very alarming to her. And she said, what we need to do is a lot of uh, anti-racist deep canvassing in this country. And I immediately thought, you know, it's it's anti-racism as you're presenting it, you know, not not as somebody would have presented it 30 or 40 years ago mm. as part of the civil rights uh, movement is one of the reasons we have Trump. I mean, it's it's this identitarian on the left, identitarianism on the left that that fuels the, the populist authoritarian right in so many ways. And I just I just thought like and also, you know, there there are just little details that that your AOCs always seem to leave out of the calculus. I mean, for example, in in Hispanic a majority or counties with large Hispanic populations across the country, Trump support actually increased for some reason between 2016 and 2020. Mm. Um, there, there are reasons why Trump appeals to people beyond just their flagrant racism and bigotry. You know, and, and I, I think we need to try our best to get to the bottom of that um, instead of just and that doesn't mean that there isn't bigotry among Trump supporters. I mean, there, there's plenty of it. You know? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, it, you know, what, what you said earlier about how there's this relativism on the left, um, or, or you know, some relativism that might insist, you know, uh, let's, let's just let people live the way they want to live. Let's let other cultures function the way they want to culture or the, the way they want to function. You know, it, it made me think of your conversation with, uh, uh Shadi Hamid uh, recently where mm. you guys, you guys talked about how <laughs> in some parts of the world, um, democratic systems will produce illiberal and undemocratic outcomes. And, you know, these societies have to figure out a way to deal with that and maintain, um, popular sovereignty and, and, you know, respect the popular will while simultaneously, um, you know, uh, well, simultaneously trying to, I think people from the outside can condemn, you know, Islamism, for example, Without saying, you know, it's okay for the United States not to call the, the coup in Egypt a coup, um, you know, when Sisi took power from the Muslim Brotherhood. Like, that was something the United States refused to do for a while yes. because we didn't like the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, it, you know, if, if they are popularly elected, if Morsi was popularly elected, then you just have to accept that result. And the same, same thing applies in the United States, you know. Sometimes populist right wingers will, will take power and, you know, it, you, have to, you have to respect democracy as it functions.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the on the question of uh, the Hispanic support for Donald Trump, I I did flag that for uh, a, a very woke lefty friend of mine, who then launched she launched into a, a a long explanation about why that still was actually racism because if you break down the Hispanics into um, Hispanics of color and white Hispanics, it's mostly the white Hispanics who are going for Trump, so it's still white supremacy. Agree. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. Well, no matter well, what happens, uh, there's always an excuse. You know, if, if African-Americans go for Trump, then it'll be the white, the lighter-skinned African-Americans or the African-Americans who come from Nigeria who are going for Trump, but actually the actual African-Americans who are descended from slaves are not going for Trump. Therefore, oh, but hang on. Well, the ones who are only two generations away from slaves are not going for Trump. But the, I mean, they're going for Trump. But the ones who are four generations away from slaves, so, you know, you can carve it up. You can retroactively make whatever excuse you want to to make your enemies always, uh, always bigots. And racists, um, yeah, yeah. Matt, one of the interesting things in the the title of the book that I that interested me or that took me back was the word counter enlightenment. The the book's title is "How Hitchens Can Save the Left: Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter Enlightenment." What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so it's it's uh, both of the sort of currents that you could witness on the populist right and the sort of illiberal left. So, you know, you you have the emergence of people like Viktor Orban and Trump and, you know, for a time there was AFD in Germany that they've uh, fallen by the wayside a little bit. Uh, Le Pen is performing much better um, in in French elections than than she once did. And she's sort of successfully uh, deodorizing her family name, Um, you know, and and then there's Trump, obviously, who (laughs) just flagrantly rejects democracy, is no friend of, of free speech. Um, So you have all of that happening on the right. And then, you know, as I noted earlier, you have these liberal trends on the left. So you have uh, the DEI industry and you have people who write uh, as if race and gender and sexuality are just about the only critical variables for political mobilization and action. Um, And these are both very powerful anti-enlightenment currents, I would argue and then there are all the spin-off issues that, that come from those. I mean, I think there's a new parochialism on the right. Um, you know, it, at the very, at the very least, you could say that the neocons did have some sense of the rest of the world. And they they would occasionally uh, couch their arguments in, in, uh, in liberal-ish tones. They would say, you know, defending democracy in Iraq is an important thing. Um, you know, expanding the sphere of of human rights and human dignity is important and you know that's the sort of thing you'd get from from some of the neocons and some were more believable and more consistent on those issues than others so you know wolf Witz versus dick cheney um, but then at the same time uh you, you the right has really shifted toward this more insular kind of um isolationist tucker carlson-esque uh, worldview. And I, I, I think that's a depressing shift in many ways because you know say again say what you want about neocons they don't they don't sound like Charles Lindbergh you know they're not producing um, endless streams of monologues about how uh, an immigration act in the '60s pretty much set the United States on a course for national destruction and they don't they, they don't sort of flirt with uh, really ugly. Um, really ugly sort of retrograde ideas about like the character of the country and how immigrants are undermining it and spoiling it. Um, so I, I well, just think, I think that they're, they're all, Carlson these... deserves an honorable mention. Yeah. Yeah. Carlson. I mean, he, he's just, it really, you know, people would accuse Carlson of being a proponent of the great replacement theory. And then all these people at, at you know, who defend him would say, Oh, what, what nonsense is this? You know, Carlson's not some fascist adjacent character he's not he's not some horrible eight chan figure and i started watching some of his monologues and that's just exactly the argument that he's making he's saying that democrats are importing immigrants into the country because they think that they're more pliable and they think that they will be more compliant voters um and that that that's the very definition of the great replacement theory where you're you're basically saying let's weed out all these these white folks and get these brown folks in here because they'll vote the way we want them to and, you know, this is this is a deeply noxious and really disgusting idea. And, and Carlson devoted monologue after monologue to this. I, I spent a lot of time listening to Carlson because I write about him uh, fairly, fairly often. And it's just, it's amazing to me that that wasn't the sort of thing that got him fired from Fox News or got him fired. Well, it, may, it, may uh, it may have been, it may
0: have reached a tipping point, right? I mean, yeah, that's a, possible. there were proximate causes, but, uh, you know, clearly none of the proximate causes, the immediate causes were severe enough to warrant firing him. So there must, my sense is that the Murdochs must've been, uh, finding him distasteful for quite some time to finally leap. I mean, uh, just as a tangent, the the great replacement theory. I wish that we on the left had mounted a better defence against against it. I heard a podcast. I think it was the New York Times Daily podcast. It was some explanation of the great replacement, or maybe it was an explanation of Tucker's firing. And it was so it was such a caricature of the great replacement theory for which I have no truck. I should say that I felt like if I. I mean, if I was on the left and I didn't – I wasn't a journalist, so I wasn't already investigating the kinds of things that French intellectuals behind the Great Replacement Theory were saying, I would just think that anyone who believed anything even remotely like it was deranged. I mean, they were presenting it as if – this comes back to like presenting the – worst version of your opponent's arguments which in such a caricatured way that you never actually understand what your opponent really thinks. Like the, the most generous interpretation of a great replacement theory adjacent type of argument is I suppose a sort of Douglas Murray-esque kind of concern that there's been enormous demographic change, particularly in Europe where it hasn't been integrated as well as it has in the United States and Australia uh, where you've got suburbs of you know 90 percent all uh, a foreign um, ethnicity and religion and language and high, very very high stubbornly high unemployment combined with sort of localized racism and a sclerotic economic uh, and labor market which is causing problems of its own and the idea is you know is it is a, is a person allowed to express some kind of demographic anxiety about the changing face of the town that they grew up in or the suburb that they grew up in or even the city in the case of london that they grew up in which has gone from being a white city 40 years ago to a multicultural dynamic international cosmopolitan globe globo city like to some extent i just feel like we on the left should sort of own that that is actually what we like we actually like big <laughs> international cosmopolitan Globo cities that have lots of different colors and lots of different foods and religions and ethnicities. We can't, but what we're currently doing is sort of gaslighting everyone by pretending almost that it's not happening, or that anyone who notices that there's been a massive demographic change is spouting the great replacement theory. Like I, it's true that Tucker actually did take the extra step of saying Democrats are doing this to get more voters. But mm-hmm. if you just didn't take that extra step, you would still be accused of peddling noxious racism. And I'm not sure that the most robust retort to that is to say there's actually nothing to see here because there is something to see here. And, it's some, and mm-hmm. we should sort of, I feel like we should be prouder of it in a way. We should p- be prouder of, yeah, we, we actually do want to change the demography of the country from being all white and all the same to being a melting pot. That is our goal. Like, where do you take
1: that? Well, the question I would always have for somebody who's really worried about demographic change is in exactly what ways do you see demographic change sort of manifesting in cultural problems or political problems? Is, I mean, in the United States right now, for example, I mean, the most, the most like noxious political fact about the country is just strict polarization, which is driven by a, wide range of factors i mean it's you know it's kind of been happening since the 90s since the rise of conservative talk radio behemoths like rush limbaugh and since you know congress stopped fraternizing as much as they used to and they you know they started appealing to more and more radical um primary voters and this you know this thing has just gotten worse and worse and And i look at that and i say well that's that's like one of the primary problems we have and it doesn't seem like demographic change has much to do with that. And, you know, if you look at jobs being taken by immigrants, um, what to what extent is that happening? You know, how, how many jobs have been lost? How many jobs will be lost in the future? Um, you know, how, it, it, I just, I want, I always want, um, and I actually read uh, Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe. And, um, I've, I've read a lot of his work about immigration and he, he just thinks that countries reach this sort of carrying capacity where once they, once they become, um, once they become sufficiently diverse or sufficiently sort of stratified, um, they, they lose a sense of national identity and the whole thing kind of comes apart at the seams. And this is, this is something that you're you're hearing more and more frequently on the right. That's why there's been this resurgence of nationalism as a good thing. You know, um, I, I read Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism, and, and Rich Lowry's book, The Case for Nationalism, when, when they both came out. And they're they're basically saying that, you know, these people who say uh, the United States is an idea or America is an idea are, are confused because it's a defined territory with a specific history and a specific culture instead of traditions, and if we get away from all of that, then what what are we really, and will we will we be able to have national solidarity? And it, you know, it's it's not as if that's an unintelligible argument. It's it's not as if um, I can't see the problem with a lot of immigration in France, for example, sort of rendering people ghettoized and separating communities, and you know, you you end up with. You end up with higher crime rates in those communities and then there, there are higher incarceration rates, which breeds anger, which could lead to violence. And, you know, it's, it's not as if these are all these arguments are falling on deaf ears. Um, but I, I just think historically, as countries have become more diverse, um, they tend to absorb people fairly effectively. I mean, there was a time in the United States when people made those exact same arguments about the Irish, <laughs> when they made those arguments about Italians. Yeah. You know, and now the Irish and Italians, I and mean, they're just they're just white. They're just you know they check the white box on the yeah, on the census, yeah. and we just kind of move on. And I, I just think that's like the the general state of our I, I, I we just seem fairly malleable in that sense. Yeah. And it, I always just sort of <laughs>
0: one, one thing that's also interesting to me is that the the people who are making the argument about there being a limited carrying capacity to immigration. Are also the kinds of people who cause the, that limiting, limited carrying capacity by complaining about migrants and the impact that migrants have on the society. Like if, oh if... Well, yeah. If ever, like, yeah, there's it's, carrying it's, capacity from my perspective because I'm perfectly happy. Well, I suppose there's some carrying capacity in the sense that I wouldn't want to live in, like, a, a community which was a fundamentalist Muslim com- com- suburb or something. But there's a very, very high carrying capacity from my point of view because I'm not the type of person who's going to write lots of hand-wringing books about the carrying capacity of my culture. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's sort of self-fulfilling.
1: Right, right. Well, that's a good point. And um, H- Hitchens was, was often... Very critical of people who were, seemed overly concerned about demographic change. Uh, he he would he always distrusted people who'd start talking ominously about birth rates. And uh, you know he was a, he was a big fan of the Italian journalist Ariana Falacci, but he he thought she had sort of fallen into this trap of saying you know there are these immigrant communities coming into into Europe and, and they're they're uh, basically having too many kids. And this this was something he always found ugly. And he he distrusted for what I believe are good reasons. Um, So there's just this, it's one of those issues where time is just going to have to tell, you know, Uh, like I Mm. am generally in favor of more robust immigration. Um, I think it's, I think it's valuable. I think it generally adds value to a society. Um, In some cases, I think we actually owe a debt to people. I mean, for example, I think the United States should be taking many more Afghan refugees than, than it's taking. Um I, I I think it's wonderful that so many European countries have stepped up and, and absorbed uh, Ukrainian refugees. Um so the, you know but questions of war and, and peace and, and uh conflict aside, um I, I just generally think that that immigration is is good for society. Um and I, I just haven't I haven't seen you know I haven't seen the sort of Cultural and social breakdown that that people are always predicting when it comes to uh, mass immigration. You know, right. it, it, it's it's true that there, you know, you'll you'll see. I mean, for example, one distinction you could make is between like the Muslim community in, in France and the Muslim community in the United States. Um, and I, I believe at least last time I looked at these numbers, if if you're a Muslim in, in France, you're you're probably in a lower uh, socioeconomic bracket, and you're. Yeah. Like disproportionately likely to commit crimes, whereas in the United States, if you're a Muslim, you're disproportionately likely not to commit crimes. Um, If that's incorrect, you you throw a note in the show notes or something. But there are good reasons why this is so, and you know, Muslims comprise a larger proportion of the French population, and there have obviously been very, very high-profile and horrifying attacks in in Paris and Nice and other places in in France. So, you know, anti-immigrant or like. Anti Muslim sentiment there stems from from those things. Um, but every country is different. And there, of course, there are many peace loving uh, French Muslims who, who don't deserve to be lumped in with maniacs. Mm. And it, it's just, and there's just a, yeah, it's just one of the most complex issues imaginable. But I, I tend to take this sort of Vigenzian line that internationalism is, generally speaking, warts and all, a good thing. And that includes high levels of immigration.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you said in your uh, in your communications with me in your email was that you had sort of lost, you'd become disillusioned, basically, in a movement of sort of Hitchensian, which is a word that I just heard you coin, which I like, uh, heterodox, yes. classical liberal uh, people who had been pushing back against the craziness on both sides, and that you momentarily found that bracing and have now much like myself, I guess, lost, that the sheen has come off that. Can you try to articulate to <laughs> people who aren't as online as we are what that movement is or was and why you you're, it's souring on you?
1: Yeah, I can do my best. So, you know, I will say this for myself. There are some figures who are part of what's sometimes called the intellectual dark web, though nobody really uses that term anymore as far as I can tell. Like only the most online people who are like <laughs> remembering those debates fondly or not fondly are the ones who use it. But anyway, uh, I, I, I have always been critical of Jordan Peterson in print. Um, my first ever article for Quillette was an attack on his rev- religious views, which are entirely opaque and impenetrable. You just can't really pin the guy down on what he actually thinks. And then he always hits you with the standard canards like atheism is responsible for all the crimes of the 20th century and blah, blah, blah. Um, so there are some, and you know, what bothered me was even when I was more, more interested in the sort of heterodox sphere or space, um, watching Peterson talk about gender pronouns on campus and insisting that, you know, this is, this is the sort of tactic that you see reprehensibly murderous people throughout history use, you know, trying to control language. This is, this is a, a clear path to. Uh, Stalinism. And he would use that word, Stalinism, frequently. And I remember watching a, a, an interview or a conversation between Camille Paglia and Christina Hoff Summers, you know, and I was all for Christina Hoff Summers when people were shouting her down at Oberlin College and calling her a fascist, which, you know, was just such egregious nonsense that it barely merits a response. But, you know, you just hear, you hear uh, Camille Paglia saying the same thing, like, these kids on campus, they're positively Soviet. I remember that exact construction. Positively like Camille Palio was saying that? Yeah, she did. She did. She said positively they were. Soviet. Yeah, she did. Wow. I'll find I, I'll I'll send you the I'll fish up the um, interview and send it to you when we, when we get done. But yeah. And then Christina Summers is kind of nodded along. And it's, it's just one of those things where it, it's the exact equivalent of these idiot kids calling Christina Summers a fascist. is right. To go around and call these kids, you know, Stalinists. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I just find, I just found that very suspicious and it made me think that maybe some of these people in the heterodox space, uh, aren't exactly on the level and, um, they might be <laughs> prone to the same hysteria and the same sort of martyrdom God uh, complex that, that some of these kids seem to have, Right. you know, so in the, yeah, in the years, since, I mean, it also like it's worth
0: remembering, university kids are going to be university kids like they're going to do what university kids have always done uh grown-up intellectuals can have have, have, i have a higher expectation of them it's like uh you know when if i see sometimes my my dad would be shouting at my two-year-old son and i'd be like dad if a grown-up is in an argument with a two-year-old who's the child (laughs) Really, <laughs> like, who's the child here if you're having an argument with a two-year-old uh and similarly if you're if you're in a shouting match and a you know a name calling match with a blue-haired 19 year old uh kid on a at a lefty campus like who's the kid here like they're gonna the problem the problem with compelled i suppose the, to be as generous as possible to the jordan petersons and camille Pallys of the world the problem with the current moment is that there are genuinely I don't want to say Stalinist, but genuinely kind of authoritarian adjacent uh, tendencies coming out of bureaucracies at some of these institutions and in corporate and in the corporate world, which are uh, too ready to jump at the at shadows and to be terrified of social media campaigns. And so we'll give in to the
1: the silliness, but attacking the kids themselves seems beneath. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there are canaries squawking or peeping or whatever it is that canaries do in the coal mine. You know, I mean, the, the, these are pretty, um, pretty authoritarian habits that you see emerge on the left. It, it, it's like kids shouting fascist and, you know, step down and all that stuff. But that, that is just kind of classic campus behavior. I mean, I remember when I was in, I was in um, Seattle and I was at a bar and somebody had scrawled, you know, Fuck the Nazis on this pool, on this side of a pool table, which was uh, already pissed me off because they were like they were defacing a pool table. And then it was and it was like what you're storming the beaches of Seattle now. Like it's just it's so unbelievably stupid. But you do kind of get the sense that some of that's got to be a phase. And I know uh, I, I already I can hear the retorts sort of getting generated as I speak. I know that some of this stuff has made its way into the corporate world. I know that some of these kids have graduated And they've gone on to to sort of derange our politics in many ways and to to produce a lot of really, really strange nonsense. I mean, especially after the Floyd killing, which was obviously horrific, but it did lead to a sort of paroxysm of of (laughs) like identitarian rage in many ways. And you'd have things I mean, I remember Roxane Gay uh, wrote an article for The New York Times saying, basically, if you call if you call the cops on a black American, you're ordering a hit. On, on that person wow. and I was like this is really you're going to publish this in the New York Times are you kidding wow. me and so it's just that sort of thing that that just <laughs> has to drive you crazy yeah I mean um, just so
0: actually speaking let's take the total number of police encounters with uh with black people in America and let's take the total number of fatal police shootings of black people in America and
1: let's see if they're the same number Roxanne Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, there are millions of encounters, you know, so it's, of course, of course, you're not ordering a hit, but it's like, this is just another one of those completely mind, it's mind ridden subject, um, where if you just try to, if you try to suggest that maybe, okay, so disproportionate crime rates are going to lead to disproportionate police encounters, uh, which will likely lead to disproportionate shootings. Okay. That's a fair thing to say. Um, but then you have to diagnose crime rates in the United States. Well, why are there higher crime rates among certain communities? Um, it's it's for obvious reasons, historical reasons, socioeconomic reasons. Systemic racism is definitely a real concept. Like that's one of those concepts you'll hear bandied about on the left, um, mindlessly in many cases. But, you know, the, the core idea is is perfectly reasonable. Um, I actually just finished that, this new Martin Luther King biography. It's just called King Alive Life by Jonathan Eig. And it's it's just a masterpiece, and it's a good reminder that King really, he's really not the sort of fuzzy moderate that many people present him <laughs> as today. Like he, he was, he was much much more radical than than all of that, you know. And he, he constantly yeah, but let me Let me just let me just uh. uh...
0: Ensure that people don't misunderstand that statement. W- there are some. There are sometimes the King wars where people try to, you know, as they do with Hitchens as well, try to inherit and try to use King as uh, as their plaything and try to put him on their side. He was never radical in tribalism and identitarianism, right? I mean, he was never. He was never. He never diluted his message that the, the future belongs to comedy between the races rather than antagonism between the races and uh, self-consciousness about race. Yeah, he, was it radical was... In, he was radical politically, he was radical in foreign policy, he was radical economically, he was radical religiously. Absolutely. He wasn't radical on the central tenet that puts him in
1: stark contrast to the modern diversity, equity and inclusion mantra. Well, I I do think that um, one of the weird habits that has sort of formed among many of the people who are crusading for racial justice and equality today is this like is is this turn inward yet again. Um, So you you do have people like D'Angelo saying what we really need to to do is get people to interrogate their own racism. I mean, you need to search your soul and fish out the bigotry that's buried within it. You know, and you need to fix. I think King was so much more focused on concrete issues. I mean, he was focused on poverty. Um, his his campaign expanded. Um, it expanded from integration in the South to um, Chicago, and you know, he he went out to L.A. against the advice of many of his fellow civil rights leaders. You know, when when riots were happening there, and he he was constantly building this movement larger and larger. And I, I just don't think the thing that I find hard to imagine. Is King sort of urging people to be more introspective about their racism? You know, I think what he'd say is, why do we have higher, much higher incarceration rates among Black Americans today? Why do we have lower levels of education, educational attainment? Um, mm. Why do we have um, way, way lower levels of savings and 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 just income levels? Um, that's the sort of thing I imagine he would be focused on. But all those things are still horrible inequities in the U.S. I mean, they're all mm. real disparities. And this, to get back to Hitchens. Um, I, I think one of the valuable things about Hitchens' legacy is that he was as unrelenting on um, just the, the reality of structural racism um, as anyone should want him to be, as any right. hardcore yeah. lefty should want him to be. I mean, he yeah. there's a debate between him and Glenn Lowry that you can find on C-SPAN where he's making the case for reparations.
0: Glenn Landry uh, is, uh,
1: is a, a, a celebrated black economist and
0: academic uh, for people who don't know and is is generally not woke. So he would have been arguing against reparations for African-Americans yes. even though he himself is an African-American and what Hitchens was taking the
1: pro-reparation side. Yeah. So, so that's I, – I just think that there's – the way I put it in the book was that Hitchens didn't just clear his throat. Uh, With a couple of bromides about how, you know, it's important to, um, equality is important. uh, Racism is bad. But anyway, here are all the problems with the woke left, you know, with the, (laughs) with the illiberal left or the Stalinist, um, Stalinism on campus or what have you. I just feel like that's so much of what you encounter today on the sort of heterodox, right? And you used to get those throat clearings from somebody like Dave Rubin, but now the guy's just on the right. I mean, he's just a right wing pundit. Um, and And that's that's another reason why I don't I'm not terribly fond of the heterodox sphere is because I I just feel like if you're going to obsess over how like, for example, the CDC, uh, I think it was the CDC. But there were no, there were a bunch of public health officials in the United States who released a statement uh, during the George Floyd protests uh, in 2020 where they said racism is a public health crisis, too. Um, We should we should allow these people to protest maskless or do whatever they want to do because that, that takes precedence. And then a lot of people would cry foul and say, but, you know, when when there were um, right-wingers protesting in Michigan, you said, oh, you're out there without masks on, you're going to kill everybody. Um, and they saw this. And that's, that is a contradiction. And I do think that that's, that's stupid and it's politically um, unattractive. Yeah. But at the same time, the people who get so incensed about that letter issued by public health professionals, I, I just feel like they're not they don't really seem to care about the the core issues. Why are people in the streets? You know, why 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 is the United States still racked with with racial animosity and still um and still so so incredibly deeply horrifically unequal? You know, yeah. I just think if you're going to go on this crusade, this anti-woke crusade, then you should have some some bona fides that show that you actually give a shit about mm-hmm. about black Americans and about other, other marginalized communities in the country. And I just don't think, I just don't think a lot of these people do. I just think they're entrepreneurs who are making, you know, they're getting a lot of Substack followers and pissing a lot of people off on Twitter. And they don't, I don't think they actually care all that much about racial inequality. Mm. I mean, that's cynical, but I think it's probably true. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends who you're talking about,
0: I suppose. Glenn Lowry does. Yeah. yeah, You know, Oh no, no, I wouldn't, I I would never
1: say that about Lowry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yes, it's it, look, it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. I want to talk to you about uh, about. I mean, there's so much we could talk about about Hitch, but I want to specifically talk about Brett Weinstein, uh, but, but I, and and conspiracy theories and irrationalism because I think this is one area where we can you know you can debate. Until the cows come home about how uh, Hitchens might have felt about um, diversity, equity and inclusion programs, but we're absolutely certain how he would have felt about uh, conspiratorial uh, thinking about fuzzy headed uh, misapplication of of focus on, uh, on, I suppose... Aspects of, uh, of an argument that seemingly don't add up, but then taking, cherry picking those aspects to turn them into a whole narrative, uh, that doesn't accord with science, um, Matt, uh, I'll, I'm going to say goodbye to the, uh, to the people who are listening to the free episode of the podcast and this will, uh, this will be a bonus for, uh, for our subscribers on Substack. So thanks for joining us. If you're, uh, if you're enjoying the free, uh, the free podcast, you can always subscribe at Substack. Matt, you wrote a piece about Brett uh, entitled Brett Weinstein's COVID Agenda. Brett sees himself in a heroic struggle against demonetization and demonization, but what he's actually doing is building a powerful, just asking questions, brand of conspiratorial... <laughs> To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with the Substack.